Hello and welcome. My name is Joel Martin, the host of the Morning Melt podcast. On today's episode, Ian and I are joined by Dianne Sheldon Collins. Dianne is a freelance writer and editor who worked for several years in bookselling. She is the program officer at Writers Victoria, co-manager at the National Young Writers Festival, and former reviews editor of Aurealis magazine. Dianne has a master's in writing, editing, and publishing from the University of Queensland, which built on her undergraduate studies in literature and writing. She's had work published in the Victorian Writer, Aurealis, and Melbourne Knowledge Week, among others. In the media section, we chat about The Handmaid's Tale, Dirk Gently's holistic detective agency, the BBC Netflix show The Bodyguard, and Brandon Sanderson's Stormlight Archive books. For the topic, we chat about speculative fiction. I know, big shock. For the angle in the discussion, we chat about the publishing realities of specfic in Australia, as well as the reputation specfic might have today. As always, if you have any questions, don't hesitate in getting in touch with me at my email, mailbox at thepenofjoel.com, or check out our specfic endeavors at specfic.com.au. Thanks, and we hope you enjoy listening. Hello and welcome to the Morning Bell Podcast. My name is Joel Martin, and we are at the Brunswick Street Bookstore. Uh, are we, Ian? I think we are. Yeah, we are. The, um, they're, they're doing a bit of renovation at the moment, so Absolutely. we're upstairs, which is a bit different. It is. It's a little bit echoey, maybe. I don't know if that'll come through in the recording, but uh, that's a tram. <laughs> Atmospheric. Yeah, absolutely. I I do highly recommend uh, that people check out the photo we took uh, up here, though. It's like I don't because I look terrible. I know. I look really bad. It looks a bit like a '90s hip hop video. Yes, it does. uh, Except with no one who would ever be in a '90s. I mean, your jumper does suit that era as well. So thank you. It works. That's a compliment. It looks like the cover of our debut album. There you go. That's true. That's true. (laughs) Which I'm going to call Spec Something. Spec. Yeah. There we go. Fantastic. Spec space. There I we go. Like That's that. our debut album. Hmm. Ian, good to have you. How has your week been? Uh, it's been all right. I'm I'm chugging along. My work has gone well, and uh, I'm almost finished uh, a work in progress, and I'm on a first draft of a novel. So that's good. Wonderful. Yeah. There you go. And how is the first drafting coming along? Oh, it's coming along. It's all right. Yeah. It's, you know, I think when you write things, sometimes you spend a long time getting to that one scene you always wanted <laughs> to write. Yeah, I'm kind of there. So that's yeah. good. That's no. a nice feeling. It's. Isn't it great when you're first drafting and you want to talk to people about your first draft, but at the same time you don't? Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's I get this feeling a lot, but yeah, we'll, we'll we might get into that a little bit. Dion, welcome to the podcast. Really Thank good you for to have me. you. Yeah, no, fantastic. Yeah, so what about you? First drafting, what's your experience has been like? Oh, that's an interesting one because I mean, like you, I, I, I mean, I love talking about myself. Yes. So, so thank you for inviting me to our podcast. Yes. Um, Kindred I, spirit, right? Yeah, yeah, I, I love know, this. Right? Yeah. yeah, we're going to have to battle it out. For Absolutely. Who gets the most me time. <laughs> um, but um, I also, and I enjoy talking about my work, partly, mm. you know, because I'm narcissistic, but yes. also because it does help me uh, to figure things out, to talk through my process yep. and to talk out the ideas. So I do enjoy talking about first drafts with people, but they're also, they are quite fragile because yes. you're still, yep. you know, figuring out what those ideas are and the ideas are still quite close to you and you don't know yet if it just sounds stupid when you talk about it. So it's kind of this weird mix of uh, vulnerability and excitement. Yes. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. I I always say to people, and I've said this on the podcast before, but it's for me, it's like a really fragile glass house. Like mm-hmm. everything's made of glass. And if you go tell somebody about it and they're like, but what about this bit? And it just shatters. <laughs> and the idea is terrible now. And then you're like, well, it's awful. Yeah. And I'm never going to continue writing it because you broke a hole in it. But yeah. at the same time, uh, exposing yourself to, to some ideas outside when you're formulating it, it could be mm. helpful as well. Yeah. I don't know. I think it's important. I think the thing I've, something I've realized about writing process over the last uh, six months having a new baby mm. uh, is that you the dedicated writing time really is precious because it's amazing what you can get achieved mm-hmm. with just some focused time. Like, for example, I say I'm getting to the end of a novel. I had no idea where I was going to chop. I knew I, I had, you know, kind of a, uh, more than one novel in this in this story, but I had mm. no idea where I was going to chop it until yeah. I had like a half day of dedicated time uh, where I was like, okay, finally figured out the point. So I think that dedicated time makes a massive difference mm. uh, in your process. Yeah, absolutely. I think I saw a tweet on this um, and, I, and I, for the life of me, cannot remember who tweeted it. So forgive well, me. It probably wasn't me. I've just been tweeting plagiarizing oh it's definitely <laughs> not you it's definitely not me i've seen <laughs> you on a few famous people's feeds and i'm like of course he is of course that's and a how did he get here. there 
Baby yeah. kangaroo. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks, JK. Anyway, 12,000 retweets. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Nothing about writing, folks. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, if you've come here from my Twitter feed, I apologize in advance. Yeah, this is very different. <laughs> this is very different. This is like actual content. Yeah, and, real you know, content, real stuff. I'm real sorry, you were saying. Maybe later. Yeah, maybe later. Time. We'll, we'll get on to yeah. um, But you know, that, that tweet was about. You know, writers want to be left alone when they're first drafting, and then when they're finished, they want everybody to come and read what they've done. Yeah. So yes. it's like, everyone leave me alone now. Please give me some validation. It's yeah. like, Ooh. I'm sorry I cut you out of my life. Come back and read everything now. Right. Just remember me. It's me. It's the me. I need you. Me. Yes. <laughs> it's very important. But I, I often find as well, you have to kind of. Uh, that's where the beauty of writing groups, uh, you know, come about. Finding people who you can talk to about mm. things. Absolutely. Each person just needs time. But you find the people that you can trust to get that good feedback. Yeah. That's the hard part, I think. You can also get into an issue where this is both good and bad with talking to someone who knows nothing about the writing process or isn't a writer mm. or sometimes isn't even a reader. Mm. And then you're, because they're interested in what you're doing, you tell them what, they, what you're doing. And yeah. then they're like, well, that doesn't sound very good or like something <laughs> like that. And you're just like, oh. <laughs> the dual dangers of feedback from people who aren't writers is either yes. they'll be like, it's fantastic. Mm. You should publish that. You yeah. don't need to edit at all. Yeah. Or they'll be like, I don't get it. That seems weird. Are you okay? Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's like, yeah. you really need that in between. Yeah. I think, I think the, the latter of that sounds like awfully specific problems <laughs> that you might be having to answer. I'm not I'm projecting just... at all. Yeah, no. There you <laughs> go. That's true. But yeah, I, I think you're finding, finding your tribe <laughs> people actually there is there is a, a good uh, thing that um uh our good friend zb simpson uh put up <laughs> on the um on the speculate blog about um finding a tribe which i think is very important and something that's yeah. makes a big difference to the writing process hmm. absolutely well let's move on shall we to some media talk ian let's push to you first um you haven't been watching very much yeah. but you have been <laughs> continuing to watch what you have been the last time we talked yes so let's talk about that <laughs> no look I, i've continued to delve, delve into the handmaid's tale which has been good yep. yeah we've had some family staying so there's been less uh, watching of things mm. um but yeah that's been interesting um and i began to i also began reading the next cormoran strike novel um from mm. robert galbraith slash uh, Rowling in, mm. in vague disguise. So, yeah. Vague. <laughs> yeah, vague disguise. That's good. Um, and I always enjoy that. But yeah, look, um, keeping on with The Handmaid's Tale has been interesting. Um, I've got to say, uh, I think I mentioned last time, it's it's difficult. Uh, I, I, I quite enjoy The Handmaid's Tale for what it is, going away from the original material. Mm. And I don't know about you guys, but the way that I treat any... Um, any reboot, I just try to treat it as a, an homage to the original, yep. and mm. I just hold it really lightly. And I've said before, the classic example for me was the Get Smart movie where they remade it, but they didn't make it the same. They just mm. did enough homage. It's a great example. Kind of, yeah. yeah, they, they did enough. Like Even when he's running downstairs, he sees the original suit, gets in the car, and they hardly spend any time with it. It's great. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Like, yeah. And that's, that's it done right. So I, I suppose that you can kind of uh, you could say that with anything. Provided that it's... Um, that they give enough uh, face to the original, maybe, I can I can enjoy it. So yeah. that's where I'm at with that. Interesting. There we go. Deanne, your media life has just exploded recently. Yeah, so, so normally my answer to this question is, oh, I don't have a TV, I don't watch a lot of shows. Yeah. But in the last week, I've gotten Netflix, and it's kind of changing my life. Yeah. <laughs> um, not good, really. Yeah. But um, So I've been watching a lot of stuff over the last few days. Um, so quite a few examples spring to mind, but the one that I'm really excited about at the moment, um, which is actually an interesting follow-on from what you were saying, um, is uh, it's a... It's a BBC America show called Dirk Gently's Holistic Detective Agency. Yeah. Mm. Um, and it's an adaptation of uh, some Douglas Adams novels, mm. which I read a little bit of in high school, but not enough to be comparing it to the original. Yeah. Um, and this is the 2016 show. And apparently they also did a show in 2012, which mm. I haven't seen. Right. Um, so I've just been watching it as its own show mm. um, and enjoying the hell out of it. Mm. Um, but I've, I gather that it is very different from the original original novels and from the 2012 version yeah, right. and so the advice that I generally hear is um, you know don't judge it by the preceding examples just enjoy it on its own terms kind of separate it yeah, right. um, yeah uh, it's it's I don't even know how to begin explaining what this show is about because it is so weird mm. um, I can definitely see elements of Douglas Adams's mm. uh, humor in it it's very much got that surreal absurdist humor happening but it's also got a really nice um, emotional core 
before, which, um, you know, don't mm. at me, Douglas Adams fans, if you think that he's, like, <laughs> got a lot of emotional intelligence in his works. But <laughs> he's not an author who I really go to for the emotional stuff. Yeah, yeah, he's, yeah. he's much more like those caricatures running around doing weird stuff around yeah. the universe. Mm. So I can see the humour, but I think they brought in a nice emotional and characterization element to it that I'm really enjoying. Mm. Um, so it's kind of this weird mix of sci-fi, uh, comedy and crime show. Mm. Quite gory, but... I'm fine with it and I'm squeamish, mm. so if mm. I'm fine with it, I think it's fine. Mm. Um, yeah, it's it's really interesting and worth checking out. And um, eight episodes in the first season and ten episodes in the second one and then it got cancelled. Uh. Um, so, bit of a marathon, but not a big time commitment. Yeah, mm. there you go. Interesting. Yeah, no, Netflix opening up. That's, uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's yeah. a scary prospect right there. Oh, What's on your to-watch list, oh, promise? God. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Too much. <laughs> Too much. All of it. <laughs> um, this, one of the things that I always heard about Netflix and have found to be very true is there's a lot of binge watching, but there's also just sometimes almost it feels like hours spent scrolling through recommendations, oh, like just yeah. finding what to watch out yeah. of all the options mm. that they're giving you mm. um, is, is very time consuming and quite addictive in its own way. Yep. Like yes. I, one of the reasons I was keen on getting Netflix was because I always heard people recommend particular shows yep. that I couldn't check mm. out because I didn't have it. And now that I have it, I'm just watching all this new stuff I've never even heard of because yeah. it's just throwing all these like 98% recommendations recommendations at me yeah I'm like yeah you're right netflix i do love that <laughs> good formula yes, thank you i'm a little scared yeah, yeah. I, I did know a, a lady um, at my work her daughter um got on there and um and i found this great show on there it's called friends from the night <laughs> oh and no and she's watching it and so like she then spent the next you know, couple of weeks binge watching Goodness. friends she's like oh wow you wouldn't believe what ross and rachel yes uh, i would believe that i didn't even realize friends <laughs> was on netflix really uh yeah it was just, yeah. i think it is is it in australia i hope yes i think it just yeah, quite just, recently came on there because yeah. there was a whole thing on Twitter where a bunch of people in the UK were discovering it for the first time and, and horrified no by it yeah yeah like there are like as someone who perennially watches friends just yeah, eating dinner and stuff great. Yeah, like, yeah. just keep on tuning through it I mean I, I it's interesting because they, they were a show that benefited hugely from having consistent writing yep. and, and generally really good quality writing yeah. like, I know some people complain about certain seasons getting a little bit stale but I personally think it held oh, up it's great oh yeah, yeah held up really well and just like especially getting a great punchline at the end of the whole thing they can yeah. set an episode up so well and you know yesterday I was watching the episode where Rachel cooks a trifle and it you know mm-hmm. it's got a lot of great uh, one-liners in it but it yeah. also the whole thing just for it's a sitcom yeah. it's like the perfect sitcom almost. yeah, yeah. Fr- Friends is a great example of like the vision of the creators mm. being delivered in like pretty much every episode, right? Mm. There's very little of them without their hands on the show. Yep. And that shows because of the consistency. So yeah, no, I, I love Friends. Just, and despite the fact that we find certain elements of it problematic now, because yeah. we're yeah. like, yeah, we've changed a bit since yeah. then. Yeah. Yeah. A few of the jokes, I'm like, ooh. Yeah. yeah. It is one of those ones that it was a quintessentially 90s show. Yes. And I think it does need to be taken in context. context That's of its not time. like a justification. It's just saying, you know, it's definitely no, problematic. But yeah. it's also for what it was and the time it was being written, it's surprisingly sophisticated comedy. It really is. I think yeah. a lot of people in their minds, it's kind of this like cheesy sitcom you know trashy tv but when you go back and watch it you're often actually surprised by how sophisticated the humor can be it's really good Uh, that's good fun um well for me i i finally watched something after i i think watch something good yeah after just you know watching the great (laughs) um the huge monolith of golden goodness that was the meg in the cinemas which ian (laughs) still hates me for (laughs) um but no, I, I watched a show on Netflix, which was called The Bodyguard, not related to <laughs> the film, uh, which I have seen years and years ago. Yeah, right. And I, I, I just remember the famous yeah. um, scene that's on yeah. the cover, In the Rain. Um, and Kevin Costner, because he's Kevin a very handsome man. Uh, but, so The Bodyguard, it's a, I, I have a thing for BBC uh, period dramas or like anything mm. like that. And I'm a big sucker for their um, thrillers. Um, stuff like, uh, oh, what the hell is its name now? <laughs> spooks. Yeah, like yeah, Spooks right. and all that mm-hmm. kind of stuff. Um, so I didn't know that uh, this had just come to Netflix. It, it was apparently did really well in the UK. Um, and it's this story of a, um, a uh, bodyguard, basically. I forget the, the, the technical term for it. <laughs> Spoiler <laughs> alert! shock. <laughs> 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 yeah. Um, of a war veteran who's come back and uh, joined the protective services yeah. and is assigned to the home secretary in the UK. Right. Um, and there's a great 
So in in the stories I enjoy the most, it's it's because they lay a conflict really well. Mm. There's various sources of conflict. You have interpersonal conflict. You have um, social conflict. All of these different forces impose something on the protagonist, mm. which makes the story feel like mm. you're just running down this mill of bad things mm. constantly happening. And it's a great way to maintain tension. And mm. the pacing in this show mm. is really good. Like... Mm. So all cards on the table, it's pretty ridiculous. Like the things that happen in the show, you're like, okay, no, this is, this is going a bit far. Yep. But at no point did I just tap out and be like, I'm done. Yeah. You know, this is a bit too silly um, because of the pacing. They do this by music. They do this with how they shoot uh, the show. Mm. It's a really sophisticated um, way of using cinematography mm. and focusing very close. So a lot of close shots on the main character who is played by uh, Richard Madden from um, Game of Thrones fame is right. uh, Rob Stark for people. Um, and I think this is the first thing that I actually saw that I was like, wow, he, he shines really well. Mm. Uh, he does a really convincing job of playing this character who's obviously affected with a big amount of trauma from the war mm. and is carrying that, you can just see him deteriorate yeah. uh, while still trying to maintain this comic story. It's really good. I would highly recommend the show. Um, hmm. I think it's uh, it's interesting because it's one of those shows, uh, sort of like Downton Abbey, that's mm-hmm. reached over um, over the pond into yeah. America as well, yeah. and they and it's doing really well there. Mm. So, yeah, I'm very impressed. I thought it was really well shot, and if you watch a lot of uh, British TV, then you'll recognize a lot of the actors. But still, if you don't, it's worth it. So that's mm. that's my media take. I'll add it to the Netflix watch list. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, I definitely recommend that. Dang it, Joel. Yeah. Another Saturday night gone. Yeah, I'm, I'm just so tempted of being like, and now at Broadchurch, and now at this. And yeah. I'm like, yeah. yeah, I've got a list of great BBC shows, which yeah. is getting I, longer now. I'm not too worried. I mean, I figure I'm just sitting in another six months until Game of Thrones wraps up. So, you know, that's fine. Ooh, yeah. <laughs> when okay. is that? Is that next year? Yeah, right? it's next year. I mean, it's going to come faster than we realized because yeah. this right. year there was none. And, you know, and I figure in about six years, we might get a book. So, <laughs> <laughs> don't Don't get ahead of yourself. Uh, it's yeah. all right, George. We're not giving you yeah. any. Yeah. No, George, you yeah. do you. Do you, you. Do yeah, you. You, you do you. You take all the time you need, um, George. But someone else who did take a while, which has just been announced. Sorry to just no, go no. off that. Um, Thomas Harris. A uh, new oh. book coming out. Yes, so yes. I am exciting. excited uh, by that. To be fair, I actually haven't. I read um, last year. I read mm. uh, Silence of the Lambs. Loved it. Um, I haven't read all the others yet. Yeah. Uh, but uh, my wife, she read Silence of the Lambs. She's like, where are the rest? Yeah. <laughs> Straight yeah. away, she just whoosh, right through them. You, you read? No, sorry, yeah. I, I was saying that in agreement. Not oh yeah. Oh no. yeah. I love Thomas. <laughs> I haven't actually read it. Hundred <laughs> percent. I am like. Yeah, yeah. I'm actually. I'm quite bad with horror. I love. Um, dark fantasy and like gothic stories mm. but straight up horror about like cannibalistic serial killers uh like yeah maybe sometimes but, but i have to really be in the right mood <laughs> i would say and correct me if i'm wrong mm. here i i would say that he does the horror subtly enough that it's mm. not it's not just like a gore fest yeah yes. um there's there's like Definitely, I, I would recommend Silence of the Lambs. I personally wasn't too freaked out by it. I, I felt the the kind of the gore and um, the snowman was a bit worse because I did those two were my, yeah. were my Scandi uh, yeah, is a bit more <laughs> on the way way worse. yeah. Whoosh. Um, but yeah, like I, I really love that. So that's that's an exciting thing because his last book was Red Dragon. Was yeah, it yeah, Red it was Dragon? Twelve years though, or something. It's a long time. He's a long time between. So this tracks. is part of the the Hannibal series. Apparently, it's the first one which isn't. So oh. there's no. Oh, that's no very exciting. Yeah, how he works as a standalone. Mm, yeah. So I'm, I'm not sure too much of the content. I just read a bit. I was like, okay. So yeah, really I'm interested in see how that goes. He's really interesting to me as a writer who just works on an impeccable structure. Like mm. his mm. books are mm. just works of art. If you study the structure of those books, you get like A to B. This is how you write a thriller. Like mm. you can just break the story down and be like, this is, this is how you yeah. do pacing. This is how you do tension. It's incredible. Yeah. And I mean, there's a reason he's so popular. Yeah, and there? he takes a ton of time between books. There's not a guy that writes three books in a year or anything like that. Not disparaging the people who do. Yeah, but it's, it's he a just, different style. It's a completely yeah. different style of writing, and the product is very different. Um, but yeah, talk, talking about books before we um, wrap onto the the topic. Talking about books. Talking <laughs> about books. <laughs> yeah, I know. Shocking. I have more um, Netflix shows to talk about. Yes. About Netflix. Um, <laughs> No, I, I, so a bunch of recommendations over a course of years, people have been like, you need to read Brandon Sanderson. 
Right? Oh, yeah. You, you need to read Brennan's. Now, have either of you read any of his work before? I haven't. I definitely know of him. Okay. Um, I mean, as anyone who reads yes. fantasy probably would. Yeah. But um, haven't actually read him, no. Yeah. I, I haven't read it to go on my Kindle, so yeah. Yes. Um, so, I, I have this thing, as Ian well knows, mm. that I am a bit of a contrarian, not by <laughs> any intention... Ian would dispute that. Just in his nature. Yeah. <laughs> it's just, it just bleeds out of yeah, me, yeah. you know? Um, so once I heard Brandon Sanderson was very popular, I was like, well, he must be bad. Um, <laughs> and I'm definitely going to hate his work. Uh, and he's bad. And, like, he personally is a bad person, right? Um, <laughs> so I was like, yeah, none of this author work stuff. It's just right. like, he's a bad person. Right, okay. Um, so Talk about death of the author. I'm like death of the nah, author's character. Nah, nah, nah. Just, that's probably terrible. Because yeah. he's so successful. So a um, lot of projection going on. So then yeah. I, I, I was like, okay, too many people have recommended me read Sanderson. Yeah. And I just finished uh, reading some classic sword and sorcery, which is sort of my bread and butter, mm. right? That's just what I do. I live in the past, not the future mm. or the present. Um, <laughs> so I said, all right. I'm, I'm, I'm apparently, I need to know what's going on yeah. in the 21st century. Um, and I picked up Way of Kings, which mm-hmm. they said is a good way to get mm-hmm. into his, mm-hmm. his work. And I went in, and this is very honest, mm-hmm. I went in in order to not like it. Mm-hmm. I'm being completely honest. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I was like, this is going to be my reaction to mm-hmm. when I read Harry Potter for the first time. I'm just, I yeah. just went in. Mm-hmm. In that case, I didn't really go in not like it. I just ended up not. Um, but... In this case, I went and I was like, first chapter, I was like, I just, what what an intro. Um, And I persisted, and I kid you not, I have to say it's probably some of the best fantasy Mm. that I've read post-Tolkien. Wow, that's a big call. (laughs) Post-Tolkien, I think... The wow. way he does pace, again, I, I'm a big sucker for pace. If you can mm. nail that down, I'm, I'm hooked. Mm. Um, and the way he does character uh, and world building mm. is incredible. Like, so he manages not to waste too much time mm. in order to get you in the story. Uh, and yet seamlessly buries layers of world building mm. that have payoffs yeah right mm. that so setup and payoff we all know what that is but in an essence he makes the world building have a setup and payoff mm. so he shows you a thing that you're like oh this is really interesting but instead of just explaining it right there mm. he pauses to let you go on with the story and then later on in the story boom it comes back and it's mm. important yeah right and that way you don't get frustrated you mm. don't feel like you've been lied to or deliberately being hidden mm. um the information rather it feels really good. I, mm. I'm, I, yeah. So again, I, mm. I went in with, without that intention, but I, I highly recommend Way of Kings. I haven't read all, all his other stuff, but I, mm. I went through that book in a few days, bought the second, went through that, mm. and then I'm I love it when third. that happens. Mm. It's really interesting you say that too, because um, as much as I love the fantasy genre, a lot of fantasy stalls for me, particularly epic and swords and yes. sorcery fantasy, mm. because the author gets so caught up in yep. the world building yeah. that it Absolutely. does feel like an extraneous backdrop yeah. a lot of mm. the time. So payoff in world building is something that I think gets uh, underestimated yes. a lot in Absolutely. fantasy. Mm. So the fact that he's able to do that mm. and make that world actually play into the story, yeah. that is actually still pretty rare in fantasy. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. So there was a um, there was an essay by... Um, um, Michael Moorcock, who wrote the famous Elric, um, mm. uh, El- Elric of Melnebone um, mm. series of books and short stories. And he wrote this essay called um, Wizardry and Wild Romance. And I've talked about this before, mm. but um, he has a huge section of that that got turned into a book because he added a bunch mm. of stuff to it over the years. Um, it's a really good work if you write, read, or care about any kind of fantasy. I highly recommend it. He's a very opinionated guy mm. and he has a bone to pick with Tolkien, which I will <laughs> shy away from his way of doing it. He's very much on the anti-Tolkien um, bandwagon there, but he um, talks about description. He talks about world building and he talks about the idea that as fantasy writers, and this mm. is segueing a little bit into the topic, so we might as well just go That's on fine. with this. Um, <laughs> as, as fantasy writers, we rely on established ideas of what the genre does mm. to fill in the blanks. Mm. So we don't try and do anything new because we're like, well, it's just a forest, right? <laughs> it's just a forest, it's a road. You know, this is just the landscape of this place. 
we don't invest any energy into making that iconic. Mm. Yeah. And she talks about the idea that describing something alien is important. Mm. Like, mm. grounded in the real world, because that's our way of going into any story, but also create something fresh mm. is something that, like Diane, mm. I've, I've seen a little bit of in fantasy, but I've had to rely on the weird fiction route mm. of like China Mevel and mm. stuff like that. Mm. Um, to get new, fresh stuff. Because I just didn't feel a lot of that in epic fantasy. Mm. Another reason why I pulled away from Sanders because it was like, well, he wrote The Wheel of Time. Yeah, yeah. yeah. He finished it off, rather. Um, and I wasn't invested in those books. Yeah, so I was yeah. just like, well, it's just going to be, you know, mm. like that. And I was dead wrong. I was going to ask if you'd read his Wheel of Time books as well. Because yeah, writing not his, in someone yeah. else's world as yeah. well, it'd be interesting to see how the payoff worked People there. say it was amazing. People people yeah? say that the yeah. payoff was almost better than, yeah, it was almost better than, <laughs> than you know, Jordan. Yeah. I mean, I, yeah. I'd never got past the first book, to be honest. Mm. My brother has like second a lifelong commitment to... Yeah, second. I got like <laughs> yeah. three paragraphs in. I'm like, nope, yeah. not doing it. <laughs> I'm not... as the big commitment. It's fine. The whole conceit there is that the thing repeats itself, right? The mm. sta- yeah. same stories go on and on and that's great for the world, but at the same time, it's the same stories. Yeah. Mm. So... The thing yeah. for me with those books was that when they were good, they were very good. Like yes. those moments yeah. when they were addictive, I would just yeah. stay up late reading. Yep. But then when they stalled, they really stalled. Yeah. Um, and it was so hard once I'd put it down to yep. go back to it. Yep. So yeah, I read the first book, I think over a few days, kind of co- dipping in and out. Mm. was really excited at the end of it, went straight into the second one and then mm. read like three chapters of it. Yeah, and then you're like, I'm, yeah. no, I'm better yeah. than yeah. me. I got three paragraphs, you got three chapters. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, that's true. I win. <laughs> you don't forget the stuff like getting the, the, the bracelet um, and I'm forgetting the characters' names, anyway, chasing up. And I think about right. when they take the shortcut in the in the things in the darkness. Oh, man, that that's cl- imagery which you know, sticks yeah. with yeah. me. Um, so it was great when it was great. But yeah, yeah. I, I should read some sentences. Yeah, so I, I highly recommend mm. to both of you yeah. The Way of Kings. I haven't read his other stuff. I just think it's really different. Mm. And from a person who hasn't been enjoying a lot of the yeah. epic fantasy, yeah. You know, that was shocking to me of being like, oh, I'm very invested in this suddenly. So that's really good to know because, yeah, epic fantasy is one of those genres that, again, when I enjoy it, I really enjoy it. But usually the spec fic and the fantasy that I enjoy is more the weird stuff or the kind of magical realist or even like the kind of fun, action packed urban fantasy. Like, you know, those ones that I find very accessible and that focus on one or two characters as opposed to like a lot of swords and sorceries, you know, cast of a thousand characters, Mm. uh, very atmospheric, but the atmosphere usually comes through like 20 pages of detailed description and like you were saying about description I think um, it's it's really interesting about what you were saying about how that description actually has to kind of bring the weird Mm. Mm. Um, I think some fantasy authors try to do that they understand that they need to describe the world but they end up kind of describing it in these very normal terms that Mm. don't make you excited about that world like you say it's like oh there's a tree Um, it's a very nice Mm. tree it's um, a good apparently, tree. apparently it's a magical tree yeah. but yeah. you're not like feeling that magic yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm. Um, and when you find an author who can create that atmosphere and make you feel like you're actually stepping into another world um, Patricia A. McKillop is one of those authors who I find does yeah. that mm. her pacing is not always great I mm. have to be in the right mood to read her work because it is quite wordy and lyrical yeah. but mm. when I do get into her work I feel like I have been granted temporary access to another world like it's yeah. like being someone just handing me a passport to this magical yep. place and you saying, went in a wardrobe. Yeah, yeah. play That's around funny. for a few hours. So, mm, yeah. And you can feel that difference. It's often very instinctive. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think that that's a pretty neat segue into the topic, which is all about speculative fiction this time. Mm. Um, as most of you probably know by this time, because we've hammered you over the head plugging <laughs> speculate too many times. Um, <laughs> it's but never too much. It's never too much. <laughs> yeah, I hope so. Um, but we're on, the, we're on the spec fic train again um, with this. And I'm interested in talking about the genre as it is understood mm. as well as where um, where it bleeds into cutting edge literature. Like mm. that bleeding edge, I think, is dominated for me. I can see that speculative fiction does a lot mm. for literature and maybe not what it's credited for. Mm. Um, and it was interesting because in the last podcast, uh, well, was it the last? I can't remember. It all blows. <laughs> um, Rose Michael was on and mm. we were talking about how spec fic or literary spec fic, as she calls it, um, she considers to be almost more literary or in that sense pushing the boundaries further than what 
realist fiction mm. um, does. Yeah. And I'm interested in talking about that as well as why people have fallen off the, mm. the, the fantasy, why they've dismissed it as, as pretty, um, mm. and I hate to use like dirty genre, mm. um, but, but that's the connotation that comes to mind. Mm. And what we try to do at Speculate and what we try is to show the other side, show the people who work on it and also mm. the people who read it. Yeah. Um, but that also means that we acknowledge the, the issues in mm. specfic. Mm. Um, Ian, you you write specfic. I mean, all your work so far has been specfic of some yeah. kind. Going into that, have you been like, well, it's the gutter for me, you know? <laughs> I'm resigned to the gutter. Yeah. Yeah. I made my home in the gutter. Yeah. <laughs> you just like, not until now. Thanks, yeah. Joel. <laughs> I, was, I was born in the gutter. Yeah. You merely... Oh, no. This. Here we go. <laughs> Anyway, I yep. had a lot of movie quotes tonight, but no, I, I, I wasn't born in the gutter, just to be clear. It was Christchurch <laughs> Women's Hospital, yeah. um, <laughs> which was not in the gutter. It was a lovely place. Yep. Uh, moving on very rapidly. Mm-hmm. Uh, look, going into Spickfic, I, I think that I came in charged into writing because I, I did it isolated. So it wasn't until I got involved with Writers Victoria uh, that I... Woo, yeah, shout out Writers Victoria. It wasn't until I got involved with Writers Vic um, here, in, here in Melbourne that I stepped out and learnt a lot of the conventions around um, the difference in, in esteem that happens between uh, literary and um, speculative fiction, I would have had no idea because for me it was just writing, you know, getting yeah, out and writing. Absolutely. And I didn't realise, I think, going in that, that I was stepping into uh, genre in the way that I was. So I guess for me, I kind of just walked head on into it without thinking about what I was doing. I had an idea um, which has no one's ever read my original idea, which I have written into these novels. But it's a, it started with a song for me and the atmosphere that I got from this band falling up, which kind of pulled me into writing the story mm-hmm. idea. And so I, I never realised uh, that there would be challenges around that uh, in terms of the recognition of the value yeah. of speculative fiction. Because for me, it's always been the case that if writing is good, I don't care what you're writing about. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. There are you know. I'm not going to pick up Philip Pullman and say this is somehow worth less yes, than a, a classic work, which just happens to be set in a courtroom somewhere. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And, and I think uh, the distance at Specfic, and this has been talked about a lot, but the distance at Specfic allows you to take, allows you to analyze ideas and themes and social concepts and all this sort of stuff more in depth because you're able to remove the component of reality a little bit and then be like, let's actually dig into this a lot more. And I remember talking mm-hmm. to you, Dion, about um, Ursula Le Guin. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, mm. I'm a huge fan of what she did in The Left Hand of Darkness. Yeah. I think it's one of my favorite um, works of specfic. And how is that for you? Like looking at that, and yep, obviously you work for Writers Vic, so you see a lot of different writers, mm-hmm. different genres. And specfic is that thing where if you're a specfic writer, a lot of the time, well, you do other things as well, <laughs> you know? Yeah. That's really interesting. And I have so many feelings and monologues yeah. on this subject. So I'll try and like contain it and actually answer the question sure. you asked. Um, it's, it's interesting because I actually, uh, at uni, I studied literature. That was my major and my honours yeah. degree. And then uh, my postgrad was in writing, editing and publishing. And uh, as much as I, I loved doing the literature degree, um, but I did feel like when I was doing that, I couldn't really talk to people at the university mm. about the fact that I also love speculative fiction. Yeah. And if it did come up, I would often talk about it in a kind of apologetic or defensive yep. way. Like, yeah, you know, I love fantasy, but you know I also read the Brontes yeah and, um, I think Chekhov's yeah, great yeah, yeah yeah like gotta love Dostoevsky yeah. um so so it, but one of the things that was really uh empowering for me uh about doing my master's degree was that I had um teachers who actually uh wrote and published speculative fiction I had uh one teacher in particular who was wonderful uh Kim Wilkins she's a, a Brisbane-based fantasy uh author and um she she would talk in her lectures about this discrepancy in the way that people see genre fiction versus literary fiction Mm. and how she herself had often had to kind of work against that. And that was just really nice for me to hear in an academic lecture hall in this space where it it kind of often felt quite removed Mm. from fantasy. Um, So that helped me think about it in a different way. Um, And now I am, you know, I'll always wave the specific flag and be like, and, and, you know, have Mm. this defense of it because um, I do think it is an 
an undervalued genre. And it's always funny when I meet someone else who loves the genre. This happened with you and I the other mm. day, Joel. Like, yeah. you know, one hour coffee and like five minutes in, we're ranting about how no one understands speculative <laughs> fiction and you can learn yeah. so much yep. through it. Like you always have that mm, rant yeah. with, you know, another, um, it's like you recognize your yeah, tribe yeah, yeah. as you were saying before. Mm. Um, and I guess the way that I think of it is all stories are what if stories, mm. but speculative fiction by its very nature has the ability to take what if a step further. Mm. Um, and that is a strength of it. It's what makes it so interesting, but it's also one of the things that works against it in terms of status because it means people see it as escapist. Mm. They see it as a way to step away from reality and ignore it. It's Rather kind of it's seen as being it. kind of childish, yeah. like you're covering mm. your eyes and ears to the world. Whereas for me, it's actually a way of looking at the world uh, from a different angle or through a different lens, you're still sure. confronting reality and questions of reality. A lot of those core questions in speculative fiction are the same questions you'll see in realist fiction or mm -hmm. literary fiction or non-fiction, um, but they're being asked uh, from a different angle and in a different setting uh, that allows you to push those boundaries of uh, what the implications of those answers can actually be. Yeah. There's a difference between not liking uh, something as well and mm. writing it off completely. Mm. Like you could, yes. and it's. I think that's a maturity of, yeah, of yeah. Uh, understanding. And um, I, you know, it, it for someone if someone comes along and just writes off with one broad brushstroke the entirety of speculative fiction uh, because they view it as uh, not not as not as good or not as worthy yeah, for some yeah. reason. They're the one. It says more about them, I think, than yeah. it does about the the genre. But it does happen, and. Um, I think that we need to be cautious as well. There's a lot of assumptions made, I think, about... Uh, it could be some assumptions that get made about what will sell. Mm. Um, and and, and uh, it can be tougher in certain markets as well to get speculative fiction published mm. because of those kind of things, I think. Mm. Because it, there can be an assumption that you know what sells here is going to be mm. uh, modern, it's going to be set here. I mean, in, um, in Australia, often we look for things to be very Australian. Yeah, you know, mm. like really have that because uh, we're still trying to form our identity, right, mm. as That's a right. literary culture of yep. being like, what is Australiana fiction, yeah. right? And, and New Zealand sometimes got that. I, th I think sometimes New Zealand, uh, growing up, we had some really strong, uh, strong identifiers in yes. terms of uh, stuff that's really nailed the New Zealand uh, presence and and a lot I, quicker, I think, than Australia. I think yeah. so. And I'm not sure what what brought that on for me. Though not growing up in Australia, you know, mm. I, I missed out on that. But I, I certainly knew, uh, you know, Margaret Mayhe and the, the Half Men of O books that I I, I loved growing up. Up, um, I, I understood those. So I think that we, we do need to be careful. Coming back to my original point, we do need to be careful not to throw out uh, the baby with the bathwater in that yeah. sense. And to you can you can not like speculative fiction. That's fine. Yeah. I mean, there are certain types which I'm, I'm just never going to read. I'm not so much a fan of classic sword and sorcery necessarily. Yeah. But that doesn't mean I'm not going to say there's no value in it. Yeah, absolutely. And like with me, I, I recognize that you know, for me, it, it, it's. It's interesting you mentioned sword and sorcery because sword and sorcery to me is a very dated genre. Like, yeah, you know, yeah. I wouldn't recommend it to someone these days to read mm. it and be like, oh, you're not going to get much out of this. Go Conan. Yeah, go Conan, <laughs> exactly. But it's interesting, and I've, and I've said, again, I've said this before, but uh, within the Conan stories, for instance, mm. like you have the majority of them are very simple man in the whole stories. You know, he has a problem, he needs to solve the problem, <laughs> he solves it by beating it over the head with a club. Like, that's the end of the story. But like some of the stories in there have real brilliance, like mm. real good writing. There's a there's a story that stands out to me, which is the Tower of the Elephant. And it is a story where Conan is empathetic, is uh, has character growth, and he doesn't solve the problem by beating it over the head. Mm. And that shows a level of growth from the author mm. yeah. and is talking about a bunch of things, mm. as well as showing issues that Conan has as an individual. And... You know, we, we, we see that character often through a um, pop culture lens of the movies. Mm. And then we write off the, the, the list of stories of yep. being like, you know, really just tripe. Yeah, um, yeah. Yep. Where that's not true. And, and in the same way that when I mentioned about Moorcock's Elric stories mm. are incredibly interesting stories yep. that while the prose might not be as didactic and meaty as some of the, the modern writers today, and that might not ring well with a lot of audiences he's still talking about a lot of interesting stuff in there you know he's yeah. talking about the decadence of a culture that is slowly dying and the inability of one man to fix these problems yeah. and just resulting in apathy and depression mm. and it's like huge stuff yeah. um 
But it's also interesting to see that, uh, you know, Sturgeon's Law comes into play uh, quite a lot here, where, you know, the, the classic idea of um, people uh, went to him and they were like, oh, you know, 99% of science fiction is crap. Why is that? And he was like, well, 99% of everything is crap. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, in, in the idea that people pick on speculative fiction would be like, well, you have all these books that have clunky prose, and, and that's true, yeah. and is not representative of the best of it. Um, and there's a lot of good stuff, like even in modern Australian publishing. Mm. And I think this is a recent thing, but we're publishing a lot of lit spec fic mm. that is winning awards and is doing some things, stuff like Rose Michaels' Art of Navigation, mm. uh, Claire G. Coleman's work. Mm. Um, we have people like Robbie Arnaud's book, um, Flames. Mm. Um, Tasmanian author Flames is really interesting because while it's not marketed as a spec fic book, mm. um, it's a book that relies on myth and magic mm. and you know that kind of uh realist sort of spec fic and that's really interesting to see that like slow transition yeah also yeah. one more thing about the money thing right now <laughs> then i'll get you into this uh is that are we each monologuing so I, yeah. like, I feel like it's a rant from both <laughs> of all of everyone us everyone gets their rant out of the way and yeah. then we'll actually have a conversation. then we'll have a conversation yeah i know so the money joel so the money <laughs> I wonder if money, and I'd like to see what you guys think about this, but money both has a, a validating factor mm. and also it invalidates your mm. genre. If your genre makes moderate amount of money, it means that you're commercially successful and we could publish your book. Mm. If your money makes, if your book makes too much money, yeah. you're now commercial, yeah. right. yeah. you're not yeah. cutting edge and you're stuck. Yeah. Right, and right. that unfortunately, I think, is where Specfic is at the moment. It's right. it's making a ton of money. Yeah. Yeah. Like I've not met a very successful Specfic <laughs> author that isn't making a ton of money. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's like people think you can either have status or you can have money. You absolutely. can't have both. Like status in terms yeah. of uh, mm. you know being seen as worthwhile. It's like yep. if you get the dollars, okay, fine, you can have those, but you're not allowed to be part of the like the, yeah. the club of good fiction. Mm. Or if you're not making money, well, you must be doing something that no one else gets. It means you're brilliant. You're above. It all. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. it's the poet's dilemma. Yeah. yeah, man, I didn't realize I was above it all with my self published wow. work. That's incredible. <laughs> Thank you. You can come back. It's your whole but, aura. Yeah. It's all yeah. there, right? No, it's it's interesting you say that, Joel. But I th I, I think the um the just it, in terms of money, you go back to a, a, a while back, and it's not like authors always viewed things as, as spec fic. We've said this before. Spec fic and literary fic weren't necessarily viewed as different. Like, yeah, no, no. A, you yeah. know, a Ghost of Christmas Past, and yep. tell me that that was uh, not a work of speculative fiction. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, he's got a ghost visiting him. Clearly, it's not that, that, that same author is Maybe writing. Maybe Dickens just had a ghost in his house. Yeah, we don't no. know. Yeah, we go. See. It's actually non-fiction, creative exactly. non-fiction. It's, it's a weird social construction that we've mm. come to. I, I'm not the person to tell you how we came to that point yeah. but yeah that's one thing that I think about as well is that distinction is very odd yeah I think you're right and that's actually um I think what you are both saying that speaks to another one of the reasons that people often undervalue spec fic is because they misunderstand it mm. they think that speculative fiction is swords and sorcery because yes. that's yeah. what's been they think of Conan yeah yeah, yeah. exactly mm. and while that and that's just one subgenre of a much yeah. bigger genre yep. and so I think that one of the reasons people are often a bit disparaging of fantasies you know, they or they'll see it as escapist is because they think it is those adventure stories, mm. that magic. And obviously there's nothing wrong with that. Mm, but yeah. I, I think people also don't really understand the possibilities of they it and the nuance the within it. Yeah. yeah. Mm. They think that if you like fantasy, you like swords and dragons and that's all there is to it. Yeah. Um, yeah. Which, I mean, I like swords and dragons. I've definitely got no problem with yeah. those. Yeah. But yeah yeah. yeah, yeah. I think there's just a, a fundamental misunderstanding about what it actually is, which comes from what Ian was saying, that... Um, that place we've reached where uh, if you're writing sort of literary speculative fiction, you're seen as being literary. If you're yeah. writing uh, kind of commercial genre fiction, you're seen as being separate somehow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it, I think the distinction is definitely there. And it's interesting to see the authors that marry the two awkwardly mm. um, and the varying reactions that they get. Like um, Kazuo Ishiguro, we mentioned him many times, mm. The Very Giant, mm. being a literary author that always sort of works in spec fic. Mm. No one says that he's a spec fic author, yeah, yeah. even though he's writing in spec fic. Yeah. Um, it's because I, I think, um, and, and Rose said this a lot better than I do, but... A lot of lit spec fic is more focused on the 
um, the way you tell the story mm. than rather the story itself. Yeah. Uh, whereas a lot of genre fiction is more focused on the story and you know less on the prose. They want to get to the yeah. stuff. Yeah. Um, and I think that is a distinction uh, which doesn't undervalue either mm-hmm. of them. Mm. Um, Both and ways are totally valid. Exactly, yeah. yeah. They're just different types of storytelling. And uh, However, the genre of spec fic, mm-hmm. we're talking about like the setting and the, and the way that we work in it, is curious in Australia. So let, mm. let's break this down a little bit and we can cease with the monologues and get into the nitty-gritty of this. <laughs> I will um, always monologue, John. Yeah. I make no promises. <laughs> <laughs> I say that and I will continue to monologue. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I wonder if there's a difference because we're very much a young industry mm. in Australia. In America, money is not a is sort of a dirty word in publishing, right? Mm. Like if you make a ton of money that's successful and you're probably doing something right. Mm. Whereas in Australia, it's like, well, you make a ton of money. Mm. Yeah, you know, and we'll go, you know, give you an award to mm. an author that will probably sell 20 books, right? Like, mm. I wonder if there is a difference there. What do you think, Dion? Do you that's, think that's an exaggeration? Oh, Ideal and exaggeration, so sure. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, I, I think I think you're right that we have a really interesting uh, literary industry in general in mm. Australia, and the way that we treat speculative fiction here is really interesting. Um, and working at Writers Victoria, and you know, talking with published authors and and agents, um, it's interesting how often um, there is that focus on, yeah, you want to get published in Australia, that's great, but if you really want to be successful, you've got to tap the overseas you market. Can. Yeah, yeah. you've <laughs> yeah. got to get an American publisher. You've yeah. got to get an American agent, yeah. um, which is awfully sad. Yeah, 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 and it's it also makes me sad because um, um I used to be the reviews editor for Orialis yes. magazine, mm. and one of the things I did in that role was um sourcing uh, new releases for mm. review. Yeah. So I would do a lot of you know regular research into the latest releases, and because that magazine has a focus on Australian speculative fiction, mm. I was really trying to find what the Australian publishers were putting out or what Australian authors yeah. were being published. Um, and it was often really hard. I was being sent a lot of UK and US titles. Yeah. Um and and, you know, often they were great, but I was like, they're getting reviewed in dozens of other publications. Mm. Like, what about the Australian writers? So I found myself turning a lot to um, the Australian small presses. Yeah. So 12th Planet Press, uh, Ticonderoga, I think I'm pronouncing that right, mm. um, Fablecroft, um, uh, Clandestine Press. Those were the places where I was finding the anthologies of Australian authors, yeah. mm. uh, the call-outs for Australian writing, and the often the more experimental niche stuff too, mm. because their focus uh they weren't trying to sell a lot of copies they weren't doing the crowd pleasing commercial stuff Mm. they would often have an idea or a particular passion that they wanted to uh compile a book around yeah um so the boutique presses in australia and australia in general has a very strong independent publishing and book selling industry so i think that's one of our strengths and i really hope that we don't move away from that um because i think that's where a lot of the really boundary pushing spec fic is coming from Mm, but i also think it's still uh like self-publishing it's often undervalued because people do see they see success as being tied in with selling a lot of copies Mm, being with one of the big six publishers Mm. making it overseas yeah Yeah. absolutely and that idea of like maybe there's not an audience for this is is, i think a lot of the reason why it gets it's drawn out and you're right i think small press publishing is where spec fic is like growing a lot of mm-hmm. in Australia, and I really like the look of that. Um, it was interesting, like you know, uh, you just you just want them because obviously they don't have the marketing budget, mm-hmm. they don't have the mm-hmm. the, the, the the machine yeah. to to just yeah. get this book out there. So or to distribute of, it yeah, widely yeah, when yeah, they exactly. do. Exactly, the yeah. distribution channels are very small. So often you see these brilliant works that are done by uh, small press publishers, and you're like, just just go go guys yeah, you know, yeah. you go <laughs> you good thing yeah. and this idea of that like oh it's the little guy you yeah, know yeah. um and you want them to be in mm. major um, bookshops you want them to get the limelight and that's mm. that's really where the and and it's if you go to the spec fix section in a mm. lot of major bookshops they're all internationally published yeah uh, yeah it's yeah. all the Very big six few. i can't yeah. think of any bookstores even like the lovely little independent bookstores mm. usually have to specifically order in a boutique Absolutely. press title for yeah. you um because they're just they're not getting the demand to have it there on the shelf yeah. yeah um and a lot of the uh the boutique presses basically uh you know their website is the best way to get their work because they'll have an online store which sometimes yep. is someone just mailing books out from their garage yeah yep. and I, I see this a lot where it's there's there's two sides to this conundrum and I wonder is that there's speculative 
fiction authors that are writing uh, more genre-y, you know, a traditional mm-hmm. spec fic. Uh, people like Lynette Noni um, from um, Pantera Press. Mm-hmm. Like, her book blew up in, in one sense, and she's one of those success cases of being, like, yeah. someone who, mm-hmm. who was writing for a while, and then one book, and they were publishing, a, yeah. and then boom, you know, she's very well known now. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's the authors who are the niche speculative fiction authors mm. that are too niche for the niche uh, yeah. publishers. Yeah. And a lot of their work, you know, and I, I've, I've met a lot of them and I've read a lot of their work. I see this, this kind of work and I'm like, man, there's such a wealth in Australian uh, writers that you just, you feel like, well, if I tell them, just go overseas, you know, you're losing so much mm. value. Yeah. Mm. Um, and, you know, even you, mm. and like your work does not necessarily conform to certain genre expectations, yeah. which means that inevitably there might be shifts, right? Yeah, yeah. No, I, I, it's true. And I'm, I'm kind of beginning my journey towards a US agent now. Uh, and so I'll be talking through that uh, a bit in my blogging, I'm sure. But yeah, it's it's not that I... Uh, it's, it's not an indictment on the Australian industry. I think it's just more recognition that um, uh, the US market... There's, it's it's there. There's a possibility that you can um, you can make it there. Yeah. And if you can make it there, really you can make it anywhere. <laughs> so that, that's why I'm going for New York Press. No, anyway, um, it, it, there are a lot of people, and it's it's actually I'd say you know you mentioned before that it's kind of it's not even vague. People saying that you have to go to the U.S. It's almost like an established yeah. train of thought yeah, yeah. with most speculative fiction authors that you have to go to the U.S. in order to get um, to get anywhere uh, monetarily or to to make it through i i don't know what all the answers are for that and publishers have to be very judicious in where they spend their time and Absolutely. money it's yeah. a really competitive uh, industry and we understand that um so i don't have all the answers for it i've got to say that um in some ways speculative fiction can also sometimes shoot itself on the foot when they have the kind of the sword and sorcery-esque covers that come out oh yeah. my is, you know, goodness like, oh, oh, covers is a whole other dear. discussion i know but it's so important yeah, yeah. i would right? love yeah. to get a, mm. a cover designer on and talk about the way spec is portrayed because yeah. i i, I yeah. got a cover of so talking about left-handed darkness i saw this weird yin yang is that the new thing. sci-fi masterworks yeah, one? yeah that's yeah. the copy yeah. i saw that and i was like Hmm. <laughs> yeah. hmm. If yeah. I was not a not a person who knew what that book was, I would look at that and be like, "No." Yeah. You know, it it looks like sort of fantasy e. Like it doesn't tell you anything about the it's, book, right? It's doubling down on the thirty five year old Dungeons and Dragons playing males who are going to. I I, feel, I wouldn't go know. that far. No, 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 not that particular. Cover. I mean, in, sorry, I made that clear. Certain covers. Are, dub- are really doubling down on the hardcore audience. Yes. You don't need to do that. They're yes. going to buy the book. Like, you look at... Um, yeah, good at point. The, yeah. I mean, Game of Thrones is afforded having a minimalist cover. The classic cover you see these days just has, like, one symbol on the front, you know? Or, like, the buried giant. It, it yep. has a tree, mm. and that's it. And I thought that was the best-looking cover of that yeah. year. Yeah. And I was like, what's that book? Like, <laughs> yeah. I genuinely was mm. like, what is that book? And then I went and I was like, oh, it's yeah. spec Interesting. Yeah. It, it there's a lot of how presentation is and we're getting to the wrap-up stage here um but yeah it, there's a lot of little things that i think the industry is pushing mm-hmm. towards there's one bone i have to pick as well which is mm. editing it's structurally editing mm-hmm. novels is something that publishers do as little as possible due to the amount of stuff they need to do mm. the industry's changed in that sense yeah you don't have spending a year or two working mm, on like mm. this vast rewrite of a novel, right? You want to get a submission that is as close to being good yeah. and then you can push it the rest of the percentage to get it. And to, that's a lot press. of pressure on debut authors particularly Absolutely. because they have, I mean, you know, at Writers Victoria, we offer manuscript assessments yeah. and I often mm. have conversations with people about what stage do you get a manuscript assessment because, yeah. uh, you know, a lot of first-time authors are like, if I get this, my work will be accepted for publication because, mm. you know, this is the final stage of editing and I have to explain to them a Mm. it does not guarantee publication a manuscript assessment is just a form of feedback it's completely different from actually approaching a publisher Mm. and we don't want to false advertise that we don't want people to think you get an assessment you're guaranteed publication um and it also uh I have to explain to people 
when you're approaching a publisher, you like it's so tempting when you finish that first draft to go, it's done. My mm. life is, I can move on. Yeah. Let's yeah. send it out to people. And I have to say, you have to make it the best it can possibly yep. be before you send it out. They'll still be editing if it gets accepted. That is the nature of being published. Absolutely. But you want to polish it as much as possible because publishers just and literary agents as well mm. just don't have the time yeah. or the patience or the resources to give your book the benefit of the doubt and read 50,000 words before they decide whether or yeah. not it's and it's ready to take on and there's very little mentorship right in, yeah, in, yeah. in terms of publishing i mean um like a publisher won't take a book on and be like i see value in this writer because of their style and i can yeah. see the story is doing something interesting the prose might not be there yet mm. You know, mm. if that was the case, Hemingway wouldn't get published, mm. you know, mm. the, the classic American, you know, um, canon as it is, wouldn't exist without people like Gertrude Stein, right? Like yeah, one yeah. of the greatest editors of all time. And so for me, I just think I almost want it. I know it's not probably financially viable for a lot of big, big um, mm. publishers to take the time on mm. developing authors. Mm. Um, but yeah, it's just a, just another hurdle in the industry, I guess. Mm. It's interesting too, because um, I think I'm, I'm quite excited by the rise of self-publishing and I'm not just saying that because Ian's in the room. No, it's fine. <laughs> um, I think, I mean, self-publishing again, it's, it's a whole other discussion, but I think that, I mean, like anything um, there's good stuff to wade through, but there's really, uh, sorry, there's less good stuff to wade through because people sometimes self-publish before they're ready mm -hmm. but there's also a lot of really good stuff out there that people don't give a chance because Absolutely. there's still status attached to whether something is commercially yes. published yeah. so I think that you know when you were talking before about stuff that's too niche for the niche publishers I think that self-publishing and other alternative publishing yes. platforms represent a really exciting opportunity for the writers who can put in the hard yards to get their work out there in these alternative yeah. ways mm. so I'm excited about that and I had a, a that tangent was leading into another point but I can't remember what it was, so <laughs> that was also a valid point. No. So I'm yeah. just going to leave it there. <laughs> no, I think that's really interesting. And I'd pause it to both of you, and I'd be curious to get your thoughts on this as well, Ian. Mm. Um, so well, let's take, for example, a writer I know is writing a niche too niche for most niche. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. I also don't think they have the NOS for self-publishing because there is that level of being like, you need to be socially media, mm. you, know, you need to know your social media, mm. you need to know how to engage people, how yeah. to get mm. your book out there. Like, mm. what are you thinking? Yeah, You've look, been through that process. I have, yeah. It, building an audience online is a long process. I mean, the, the big thing is to build your mailing list, um, yeah. not just your social media presence. Um, I mean, with a case in point, I, I have uh, 27,000 followers on Twitter now. That's grown by 7,000 in the last Whoa. five weeks. Uh, what did you do? I started, cat, cat, no, cat. I, oh, yeah. Kangaroo. You think, yeah. you think I'm joking? But it's true. That I, just, I kind of just hit something and uh, the account has now taken off. Um, those people aren't buying books. And yeah. that's okay. Like um, You have to be okay with that. You have to know what you're doing. You have to be mature enough to acknowledge that exactly. like, this does not transition to sales. Yeah. And I think my point is that you can grow a, a social media presence. That doesn't necessarily mean that you're going um, to have uh, immediate success from that. Yes. I haven't seen a massive blowout in my book sales and I'm not pushing that either. Um, a lot of people actually, I think, distrust Twitter yes. accounts that seem like they're just, yes. they just exist they just to sell push. books. It's like yeah. you have to have an actual personality and genuineness mm. there. So I've taken the point of view that I'm just going to do what I do because this is actually just what I've been doing for a long time anyway I haven't changed much but I'm just going to do that and when the time comes to talk about books I'm going to talk about books and I'll, and I'll do it and make it clear mm -hmm. but um, I I think that you have to understand you know who your true yes. fans are and you're going to find them on your mailing list yeah. um, so if you head to ihlaking.com <laughs> <laughs> go to the pop-up anyway yeah. um, you, you'll uh, you, you think what a marketing one on one here ladies and gentlemen ABC always be closing um, anyway the, but no seriously you, you'll find where you find your true fans like you know and you'll find them in the reviews you'll find the people who who follow you on reddit that i've, I've met people who've read who've read my stuff and say they really enjoy it those people aren't necessarily in the crowd you've got your crowd you've got your your core mm. you have to know who you're after most writers i think when they're first starting out think i'm just going to be able to chuck a book out there and, and it'll be fine i thought that when i first put something out there mm -hmm. i didn't realize how difficult it is and i'm glad in this in many ways you have to have that naivety yep. when you're starting mm -hmm. out to just chuck stuff out there otherwise i'd have nothing published mm -hmm. right now and the reason i haven't had anything published for a long time Time is now the quest for quality has taken over from the naivety with which yes. I first stumbled into mm -hmm. self-publishing. Um, it's a really challenging place to be, but at the same time, none of my work would ever have got out into the world. There are like 50,000 copies out there that people have downloaded. None of that would have been read if it wasn't for, um, for self-publishing. Mm -hmm. So 
I, I just take it as, as it is what it is, but you've really got to be prepared to um, put in the hard yards. Mm. That actually reminds me of the point that I forgot before, Go for it. which was, um, and one of the reasons I'm excited about self-publishing is I think more and more people are coming to understand that search for quality. Yes. Um, yeah. I mean, I freelance as an editor. This isn't self-promotion. I'm just <laughs> saying I, I have um, both done, done both structural edits and copy edits and proofreads on um, on manuscripts mm. and on you know speculative fiction manuscripts. And it's, it's a very expensive service because there's yeah. a lot of work involved. Yeah. And I understand why a lot of writers find it very prohibitive. Um, but if you can find a good copy editor it, and a good structural editor in the earlier stages too, it is really worth it to take your book to that next level and yep. make people take it more seriously because um, people can be very elitist about things like grammar. Um, yep. I say that as yeah. someone who loves grammar. Um, you know, if you're... If you when open whom it, loves yeah, grammar. Yeah, yeah. I'm kidding. <laughs> Excuse me, Ian. It is active voice. <laughs> <laughs> oh, avoid your IMGs. Subject and yeah. object. I just, I just wanted to use the word whom. Yeah. Anyway, sorry. Fair, fair. Um, so. Uh, I totally derailed you. I'm so sorry. Whom oh, has derailed dear. me, yeah. Ian? Um, but it, it, I think people do, um, if they come across a book that's mm. got, um, you know, a cheesy or misleading yes. cover yeah. and they open it up and there are typos on the first page or they yeah. see some really obvious trope and mm. they're like, I've seen that a million times mm. before. Yep. That will put them off. And, yep. you know, you, the journey kind of ends before it starts. Mm. Yeah. Journey's a cliche too, but anyway. <laughs> <laughs> How you start a story. Super yeah, important. yeah, exactly. Yeah. So those first impressions do make a difference. And I think what's really important to uh, spec fic writers generally and self-published writers um, is about making those impressions. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. I um, One more point and then we will close out. Uh, mm. It was curious because I, I read this article about a Jewish um, a French writer mm. um, who was a literary writer. So not spec fiction, none of that. Mm. But his work was a bit too much yeah. for the literary publishers mm. to take that he self-published mm. and did so well that he got so much critical acclaim mm. that he won um, a, a major uh, literary award for a self-published book. Yeah, wow. Now, this proves some problems, right? <laughs> because now bookshops are getting um, asked by customers, hey, can you order this book in? Now, yeah. it's published on Amazon. Yeah. So the bookseller is not going to make any money off these books and they're going to be at a loss. So they just cannot order the book in. So then we have this interesting thing where in one sense, the established industry shot itself in the foot by mm -hmm. not publishing something they thought was a bit much mm. and then realizing, oh, we, we missed this. Yeah. Mm. And I wonder if this is going to happen a little bit more with self-publishing uh, spec fic in the future of these well, niche people being discovered. When you look at um, C.S. Cat's work, she yes, started absolutely. out self-publishing yeah. and then got picked up by yep. a, a big six commercial publisher yep. and has become internationally huge. So, mm. But that fan, that international fan base started with her self-publishing. It's yeah, not absolutely. that, you know, it was, yeah. it's Penguin random she's with I yes, guess. yes it's not that they made her that audience she found that audience herself and, them and then to they, them. yeah and and i mean penguin i'm sure loved that because they're like great guaranteed yeah. you know demographic target audience um mm. so that was interesting too because i think a lot of publishers are um and this isn't me <laughs> trying to disparage penguin but i think That's a fun. lot of publishers no, are yeah. <laughs> um uh, looking for someone to do that hard work for them yes. as well and that's another mm. reason self-published writers often have to build their own platform just don't have the time is, yeah it, yeah it's because you know you've got to make your own audience and then maybe the if you're I think this, there's this idea that if you're lucky the commercial publishers will notice you it's like excuse me I did alright yeah. without you let me scoop you up from the gutter over there <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. and bring you into Dickens house it's basically you can you can beat the door down yes and that's the that's the it's it's uh, it's a little bit like a storm in the castle. Yeah. You can do it through the traditional means and, and mm -hmm. you know, getting invited in, but there is a means where you can storm the castle down. You can bring uh, all the, the people down. with you and just pile them on. That's a very fantasy metaphor as it well. Is. I'm over here like, oh, so are you like hmm. the are you the yeah. sort of barbarian battering around yeah. character or are you like the thief sneaking just, in yeah. under the wall? Well, on a dragon. No, that's <laughs> definitely that's definitely the submission pile. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, sneaking yeah, under yeah, the wall yeah, is the yeah. submission yeah. pile straight that's up. I think some people do try to get into publishing houses by just literally going into the building. Yeah. Like, yeah. Could you please publish me? I do not blame them. Yeah. I wouldn't advise it. That's true. Um, but I think that's it, ladies and gentlemen. We've reached the end of the podcast. Um, I love any chat we have on SpecFic. And it's true, we have a little bit of a bias when we get uh, people on to talk about that stuff. But I hope that it's a resource as well, that people listen to that and be like, okay, there's hmm. some voices talking about it. Um, 
I would like to see more of these kinds of discussions, not just on podcasts, but mm. in festivals. I think festivals are an incredibly important resource for writers who usually are the, the writers just starting and they think that festivals are their way of like learning. Yeah. And it's disappointing to a lot of writers to find very little specific. Mm. But I, I'm sure that'll improve over time, hopefully. That's the hope, that the legitimacy that is brought in by these mm. um, specific writers winning these awards will, will bring it in. Um, but yeah, thank you very much, Dion. Thanks again for having me. It was really fun. Wonderful. All right. Where can people find you? Social media links? Where do you work? Um, oh, well, I I lurk in empty rooms in bookstores. (laughs) Um, I, uh, so I don't have, I'm not very active on social media. I feel like people just find me when they need me. Yep. (laughs) Um, but, uh, my Twitter is at Fifi Fail. Um, and I'm also, um, so I work with two arts organizations who, um, who have accounts that are actually monitored by people who are active on social media, so (laughs) people might get more out of those. Um, So Writers Victoria's Twitter is at writers underscore Vic. Um, And I'm also, um, I'm one of the co-managers with the National Young Writers Festival, um, uh, speaking of festivals. uh, And their Twitter and Instagram are both at NYWF. Fantastic. All right. Uh, Ian, where can people find you? Not your Twitter, by the way. Just ignore that. Just ignore the Twitter. Yeah, just <laughs> ignore the Twitter. Yeah. Um, you can find me at ihlaking.com. Uh, you can find me lurking on Reddit under the same username. There you go. Go, yeah. go about my Reddit username. Your real name on Reddit, really? Uh, yeah, well, I, I know. It's scary. It's, it's very uh, it's bold of you. I, I'm hashtag branding. Um, and you can literally everything, just Google ihlaking um, and you'll see a bunch of tweets. Mm-hmm. Wonderful. I feel well, bad. kangaroo, to be honest. Yeah. The kangaroo's there. I feel very bad. What's your Twitter, Ian? Oh, it's at ihlaking. There you go. Wonderful. I shouldn't ask. It's all right. I'm being nice (laughs) over here. Never going to happen again. It's It's over. We're done. Um, You can find The Morning Bell exactly where you're listening to it right now. Um, Themorningbell.com.au. You can find our Specfic endeavors at specfic.com.au. Yeah, get in touch with us if you have any questions, anyone you would want to see on. Uh, We have one more podcast before we wrap up for the end of the year. Um, Thank you very much for listening, and we'll see you on the next episode. Bye, everyone.